Um, as we get started this morning, I want to invite you to open your Bibles up to the book of Ezekiel. Uh, we're going to be there one last time this week. And again, if you don't have a hard copy of a Bible and would like to do that, uh, there in the back wall is a bookshelf behind our, behind our friend Marath there. Uh, and there's some Bibles that you can, you're welcome to help yourself to. Uh, if you're joining us for the first time today, or maybe for the first time in a while, uh, it's probably worth reminding you that we are in the midst of a, a mostly year-long series that we are doing all throughout this year, about 50 weeks long, where we are teaching through the Bible, reading through the Bible as a congregation from cover to cover. And so we just so happen to be in Ezekiel this week, but the series is called Read Scripture in 2021. As I said, this is the, the third of three weeks that we will be in the book of Ezekiel, which is one of God's prophets during a very, very specific time in Israel's history. And so I want to briefly review kind of what we've covered the last two weeks, just so that you can better appreciate where we're going today. Uh, number one, if you, if you remember a couple of weeks ago, the leaders of God's people, not all of God's people, but just the leaders of God's people from Jerusalem and Judah and so on have surrendered. And they've been taken off to live in a foreign land, the land of Babylon, because they've been unfaithful to God. And there in Babylon a priest and a prophet named Ezekiel has received a calling and a vision from God. And his calling is to warn all these leaders who are living with him in Babylon about all of the sinfulness, all the stuff that is happening back in Jerusalem. Uh, and if those living there don't change, if those living there don't relent, then they too will be removed from their promised land and Jerusalem and the temple will be no more. The vision that Ezekiel receives uh, involves watching as the glory of God kind of packs up and essentially moves out of the temple, seemingly never to return because of the unfaithfulness of God's people. And so through Ezekiel, God gives warning after warning after warning, telling them that they need to change. But despite all of God's efforts to warn them and ask them to change, uh, if you remember what we talked about last week, the people did what? Nothing. They, they, they did absolutely nothing. And so Jerusalem and the temple are destroyed, and the people who are living there are scattered. But, and this is big, God gives or begins to share a vision of a hopeful future where God himself, no longer the leaders, God himself will feed and nurture and care for the people in a way that their leaders never did. And so included in that vision, if you remember from Ezekiel 37 last week, is, is this, this image of dry bones that begin to rattle together and they come together and they receive new tendons and new flesh and the breath of life once again. And the dead are raised to live and dwell with God forever. It's a vision and a message that we summed up this way last week. It says that when all hope seems lost, God promises to fix what is unfixable. When all hope seems lost, God promises to fix the unfixable. And in their experience, much like ours, to this point in their lives, nothing has been more unfixable than death. Nothing is more reversible or unreversible than death. And yet God begins to cast this completely, a vision for, for this completely unexpected future where, where death is temporary and life with him is forever. And so the question or the mystery for the rest of the book of Ezekiel, of course, is how. And so as we, we get started this morning, I want to invite you to join me for a word of prayer as we, we begin to look 
at, at what God has in mind to, to carry out the rest of his vision. And as I always do, and especially, especially this morning, you'll see why. I want to invite you to consider imagining yourself in the throne room of God before the very presence of his glory. How would you approach him? How would you go to him in prayer? How would you talk to him? How would you revere him? How would you worship him? Think about those things and change your physical posture right now, whether that's standing or kneeling or wherever you feel called to do, lift hands. Let's go to him in a word of prayer. Let's pray. Lord in heaven, we praise your name. We magnify your name because your name is glorious. Father, as each of us sit here this morning, I pray, Lord, that that we would be fully immersed in what we're talking about, fully immersed in your word, that you would show us something we've never seen, that you'd help us to understand something we've never previously understood. And above all of that, Father, I pray that what we, we begin to understand has less to do with head knowledge and more to do with understanding the love and the grace and the mercy that you have shown us from the very beginning of time. Father, you were well within your rights to obliterate us from day one almost. And yet, Father, you have shown us grace and mercy, and we just praise you for that, Father. And so this morning, as we, we finish up the book of Ezekiel, would you, would you show us something new? Would you shape us in a new way? Father, would you guide us with your, your tender hands to love you, to know you, to understand you, to want you more? And so, Father, we, we kneel literally or figuratively before your throne, and we praise you as king of our lives. Father, today, would you give us ears to hear? Would you give us eyes to see everything that you want us to see? and the courage to change our hearts and change our lives in a way that brings glory and honor to you. This is my my prayer. The church said, amen. Amen. So recently, uh, I was watching TV, and the finale for the TV show Friends just happened to be on in our house. And I don't know if you've, you've ever watched that show before or seen the last episode, but there's a scene at the very end of that show that's, that's much like many of us have experienced and seen where the apartment that they've all lived in, that they've all uh, spent a bunch of time in throughout 10 seasons of that show is suddenly empty and bare. And they, they've packed the last of their things. They've, they've moved into a new home. And the final scene is this group of friends walking out of their apartment together for the very last time. And of course... They're leaving to go get coffee. And it's a familiar scene if you've ever moved out of somewhere, somewhere that you've lived, somewhere that you've, you've loved being in. And I'm guessing that's true for almost all of us. How many of us have moved before? Yeah, surprisingly, there's actually a few people here who have lived in the same house their entire life, which is rare and awesome. But the vast majority of us have moved out before. And if you have, you know what that moment is like at least if you're inclined to to be kind of nostalgic like I am. I'm a pretty nostalgic person. But it looks kind of like this, where you you kind of pause, and you take it all in, and you remember 
Your memory is there. You remember the, the things that you experience. You remember the, the significant moments of celebration. You remember the, the, the heartbreaking moments of loss. All those things that you experience in this place. And you take that one last breath and you prepare to say goodbye to a place that has been such a huge part of your life. Have you ever had that experience? If you knew us back in, in March of 2020, and a lot of us, a lot of people here are, are new since then, but you know that, that in March of 2020, we, we sold our house in Hayward, and we, we moved into this temporary house on the, the border of Palo Alto and Menlo Park that was getting ready to be torn down. And it just so happened that in that brief month or, or 40 days or whatever it was that we lived there, one of the biggest events in the history of the world just happened to take place. And all of a sudden, we found ourselves locked in our homes as this global pandemic swept across the globe. And, and here we were living in this, this home that was not our home, living bare minimum out of boxes with, with no extra stash of anything, including toilet paper for all of those that were going out there stealing all that. We had none of that stuff. And you'd think that in that experience, like 30, 40 days somewhere, like you'd think that place wouldn't be very meaningful to you. Like how, how meaningful could a place be if you've only lived there that long? But it just so happens that we, we suddenly found ourselves home, or whatever you want to call it, there an awful lot. We were there all the time, just like you were all in your homes all the time during that season. And uh, because of that, it was an opportunity for us as a family to make a lot of memories, things that we'll never ever forget doing because of how we experienced the early days of the pandemic there. And so even after 40 days, we, we were moving out and we were moving into this home that was our home that, that we purchased and it was new and it was exciting and all of that. And yet that we still had that moment where it was kind of sad to move out of this place that we'd only lived in a few weeks. And so just this week, Tiffany actually went down to, to Palo Alto to meet up with a friend for dinner that, that she's known her whole life who happened to be in Palo Alto for work. And she drove by the house and she texted me and she said, I just drove by and, and it's gone. It, it's, it's torn down. And uh, this new house is being framed there as we speak. But it, it was a meaningful enough place for us that I think even in that moment as she texted me, we both kind of paused and had a moment because uh, we understood that while there was no value in this structure itself, we didn't care about the building. It, it was the amount of living that we did in that house over a very short period of time that, that, that was meaningful to us, that brought a lot of memories. And there was vibrancy that we brought into that home because our family was there together. There was life being lived there. And so all of that, all the, all the living, all the memories, all that stuff is just, it's just leveled. It's, it's just gone forever. And, that, and that's the experience that I think many of us have as we, we leave places we once lived. That you, you leave and you say goodbye and, you know, you kind of reminisce for a moment. And then, and then you never come back, likely ever. But there, there is one experience in my life where, where that was not true. Uh, when I was about five years old, my, my parents made the difficult decision to, to end their marriage and split up. And we moved out of this, this big two-story house that I loved living in. It had these big stairs, and I loved running up and down them and, and doing all kinds of stuff on the stairs. And we moved into these apartments where I went back and forth between two households and two parents. You know, there are two apartments in the same complex, so I just literally walked 100 yards or whatever it was from mom's house to dad's house. And during the beginning of that season, money could sometimes be tight, as you might imagine. And so I had these, these hardworking parents who were committed to doing what it, was, what it took to keep a roof over our head and, and keep us thriving a little bit. 
And so they, they were willing to do whatever it took. And so my mom, I remember, would pick up these odd jobs from time to time just to kind of help supplement some of the income. And so one day she's, she's talking to a coworker and her coworker says, hey, you know, I want you to come over and I'll pay you to clean my house. And so my mom says, okay, sure, yeah, I'll, I'll do that. And so she gets all the details and I'm, maybe you figured out where I'm going with all of this by now. But it just so happened that this woman and her family were living in our old house. A city of 200,000 people, like what are the chances that you would meet somebody who lives in your old house just like two years later? But they did, she, she lives in our old house. And so suddenly my mom's going over and she's cleaning a house that she's cleaned hundreds of times before, only this time we don't live there. Like that's, that's a weird scenario, right? And so I remember coming with her one time and we walk upstairs and I, I look in the room that I once called my room and now it's, it's covered, it's like a teenager's room and I was like seven and that was really, really weird. And I just, I just remember that the weirdness of it all. I looked around and like the living room wasn't our living room and my bedroom wasn't my bedroom and the decorations on the wall weren't the right decorations on the wall. Like everything about this was incorrect. But what was the most weird about it all was not the stuff that occupied a particular building in Modesto. What was weird as I walked around that day was the lifelessness of being in that, in that space. For, for the family that lived there, there was life, right? But for us, I, we were just there for my mom to work and it felt, it felt lifeless and empty and cold because for me, that house was supposed to represent something. That house represented that, that mom plus dad plus me aspect of our family, that we were all together and doing life there. And now there wasn't that. Something else was happening in this, in this space and it made an impact on me. In fact, it made such an impact that if you fast forward ahead about 10 years later, my dad and my stepmom made the decision uh, that they had bought a house in, in middle school for me and they made the decision to, to sell that house and move to Livermore to be closer to the Bay Area where they worked. And uh, th that made a huge impact because this, this house was where I spent my middle school years. It was where I spent my high school years. All of my friends lived within a few houses of me. I swam in their pools, I ate their food, I knew their parents and siblings and so on. Like that was, that was a formative time of my life. And uh, as we were kind of packing up to leave, I just remember how sad I was to leave this behind because of, of what it represented to me. And I kind of made this, this promise to myself at 17 years old or whatever, that one day I'm gonna, I'm gonna go off to college, I'm gonna get a good job, and one day I'm gonna come back and I'm gonna buy this house again. I'm gonna buy what, what feels like is rightfully mine. I never owned it, obviously, but, but that was, that, was that, that emotional pull it had on my heart. I'm gonna come back, I'm gonna get this, I'm gonna raise my, my family here, my kids here, they're gonna go to the same schools I went to. I'm gonna come back and get this back again one day. I'm gonna return from this, this exile that I'm feeling in this moment. Now, why do I, I share all these random stories from my life and all these places that I've lived? Well, there's, a, there's a point to it. And the point is because of that moment right there. That, that with wisdom and life experience and maturity and all the stuff that you gain along the way as you live life, I've been able to look back on that memory and understand more clearly now that the, the joy that I got from living in that home had nothing to do at all with that building. And it had everything to do with what was happening inside, with the people and the life that was lived within those walls. That was what made a house a home. The life that happened inside, the people that happened to be inside. And what I also discovered along the way 
is that there, there's an unexpected beauty in, in the new things that come along in life, the new homes, the, the new memories that we make along the way, that living with our gaze firmly fixed kind of in the rearview mirror, always looking behind us as no way to live compared to living with, toward what's ahead, looking through the, the windshield of where we're going and embracing everything that lies ahead in our lives. And so as we begin to dig into the text a little bit this morning in the book of Ezekiel, I want you to try to search your heart, your memories, to find your own stories that, that maybe mimic or mirror some of the ones that I just shared with you. And I want, to, I want you to allow yourself to kind of sit with those feelings for just a moment, because if you can do that, I think you're more likely to appreciate where we're going in today's text. And so this morning, we're going to be looking primarily at Ezekiel chapter 40 through 48, 40 through 48, nine chapters, and it's an incredibly complex set of chapters. Um, if you did your reading this week, I'm sure you have an idea what I'm talking about. If this is new to you, hopefully you'll understand by the, the end of the message today. But in the midst of this, this hopeful vision that we concluded last week's message with, where, where God promises to feed and care for and nurture all of his people to, to be their shepherd, to reestablish this reality where he would be their God and they would be his people, a vision where dry bones receive new tendons and new flesh and the breath of life once again. Well, chapter 40 fast forwards quite a, quite a ways ahead in the timeline here. And God begins again to cast an even more hopeful but, but awfully mysterious vision of what's to come. And so this is now 20 years after God initially appeared to Ezekiel on the, the banks of the river in Babylon. And it's 14 years after the, the city of Jerusalem actually fell. And so read along with me if you would. This is Ezekiel chapter 40, verse 1. And it says this. It says, In the 25th year of our exile, at the beginning of the year, on the 10th of the month, in the 14th year after the fall of the city, on that very day, the hand of the Lord was on me and took me there. In visions of God, he took me to the land of Israel and he set me on a very high mountain on whose south side were some buildings that looked like a city. He took me there and I saw a man whose appearance was like bronze. And he was standing in the gateway with a linen cord and a measuring rod in his hand. And the man said to me, son of man, look carefully and listen closely and pay attention to everything I'm going to show you, for that is why you have been brought here. Tell the people of Israel everything you see. And so he, he begins to describe what he saw. Suddenly he's seeing a temple. But very quickly, it's evident that he's not seeing the temple that has just been destroyed. This is something else. There, there's some similarities, but this is very different. And so this man who appears like bronze takes his, his measuring rod and he begins to show Ezekiel gates and courtyards and alcoves and rooms. And, and each time he does, he takes his rod to show Ezekiel exactly how tall and how wide and how deep each of these components of this temple structure are. He takes Ezekiel inside of the temple and he shows him all the things that are happening there, the glories, the furniture, and so on. And as chapter 43 begins, Ezekiel finds himself specifically at the east gate of this temple. And he looks out, and he, and he sees something familiar, but something spectacular. He looks and he sees the glory 
of the God of Israel coming from the east. He says in chapter 43, verse 3, he says, the vision I saw was like the vision I had seen when he came to destroy the city and like the visions I had seen by the Kibar River and I fell face down. Like what else can you do when you see the glory of God except fall face down, prostrate in front of him? And so if you remember from two weeks ago, what, he, what he's seeing are these, these four winged creatures, each with four faces that look like four different animals. And there's like this expanse that he said is kind of like ice above them. And there's these four wheels and they're like wheels intersecting wheels. And there's a sapphire throne and, and a fiery figure of a man up above. Like if you remember two weeks ago, this is kind of the vision that he saw. This is what he's seeing. And now all these years later, 20 years later, he's seeing this vision again, and it's coming from the east, which is important because that's exactly the same direction that the glory of God left the temple to go in all those years ago. And so what Ezekiel is seeing here is literally the glory of God returning to the land. He says in, in chapter 43, verse 4, he says, the glory of the Lord entered the temple through the gate facing east, and then the Spirit lifted me up and brought me into the inner court, and the glory of the Lord filled the temple. And so what Ezekiel is seeing is reflective of that new hope that we talked about from last week. Ezekiel has already seen these dead and these dry bones come back to life, and now he's watching in, in awe and amazement this, this vision of, of this new temple and the return of the glory of God to that temple. Like, this is a big, big deal for the people living in Jerusalem. This is a big deal for Ezekiel. This is a big deal for all those who had recently been kicked out. Like, this is everything they'd wanted. They wanted that chance to return home. They wanted that chance to go back and relive those glory years. They wanted to be able to do that again. And now Ezekiel's got this vision of it. And it's not just this, this building, right, that, that, that they're worried about. It's, it's everything that happens inside of it. The glory of, the God, uh, glory of God is there. That there's life in this building. And so what exactly is Ezekiel seeing? How, how is he supposed to understand what he's seeing? What are we as the reader supposed to understand as we read this? Well, ironically enough, and, and this is fairly common from time to time in Scripture, scholars are completely divided as to how you should understand and interpret what's happening in these chapters. In other words, there isn't a lot of consensus right here. Uh, scholars will read this, and they'll often fall into one of four categories, one of four interpretations. There's a group of people who say, and this is the, the literal interpretation. They'll come and say, oh no, okay. What this is saying is that, that God is showing Ezekiel the plans for a new temple that is one day going to be built in Jerusalem, and it's going to replace the one that Babylon destroyed. And then there's another group of people who say, wait a second, hold on. And this is the, the symbolic Christian interpretation. They say, now, what this is doing is suggesting that, that God is showing a, a metaphorical temple. This is metaphorical, and, and God is really casting a vision for, for this new temple. But it's not literally a building. It, it's representative of, of something kind of like that, that will one day be fulfilled with, with Christians as the church. And there's another group, and this is called the dispensational interpretation. And they'll say, well, actually, the reality is it's something more like the first interpretation. There's a literal component to it, but it's not going to happen right away. It's going to happen at some point way, way in the future. And it's going to happen at the end of this expected thousand-year reign of Christ that you may have heard people talk about from time to time and so on. 
And then there's a fourth group. And they say, well, there's, there's kind of truth in all three of those interpretations. And, and this is what, what D.A. Carson called the prophetic apocalyptic interpretation. They said, no, I think what this is actually saying is, is that there, there is something real. And there is something tangible, much like the, the first and the third interpretations. But it's coupled with this, this highly symbolic language like we see in the book of Daniel and, and that we see in the book of Revelation. And, and by the way, uh, I know the word apocalypse is, is often very murky and daunting and creepy, and a lot of us go, oh, the end of the world. Let's kind of unpack the word apocalypse for just a moment. It's just a fancy word that means like revelation, revealing. That's what the very first words of the book of Revelation are, the apocalypse of Jesus Christ. And so I think it would be entirely appropriate to be able to say like, Hey, when lotto numbers are revealed, that's an apocalypse. Or when the new iPhone is revealed, that's an apocalypse, right? It's just, it just means revealing. And so all of this is a really, really long way of saying that understanding this temple language in Ezekiel is tough. It's, it's not the easiest thing in the world to understand, even for the very best minds in biblical scholarship. All, all four of those views have really, really great points behind believing what they believe is happening there. But here's the best part. I don't think any of those differences of viewpoints need to have a huge impact on, on what we learn and take from the book of Ezekiel today. The most important hint that I think we get from Ezekiel actually happens in, in chapter 43, verses 6 and 7. And I want to preface this by saying that if you've been a part of Lake Merced for, say, eight or so months, you may remember that in the fall, we did a series called Greater Than, and we, we marched through the book of Hebrews, and we really unpacked a lot of the language and stuff that's there. It's, it's a very complex book, but, but in Hebrews, we, we explored some of the language around heaven and earth, uh, around the temple, and so on. And so if you can kind of lean on, on what you might remember from that series, you're going to be that much better off in terms of understanding what's getting ready to happen in Ezekiel right here. But in that series we dealt with kind of a common misconception that a lot of people have, and even most Christians, in my experience, seem to have around what the Bible teaches about heaven and death and all of that stuff. And so if you go to most funerals today, you'll hear lots of people talk about, you know, this loved one and, and that loved one, and, and they're all going to heaven. And usually what that means in their mind is that there's some expectation that when we die, we kind of, we kind of float into this celestial realm and as disembodied spirits where we fly off into the clouds, harp in hand, and we go to this land that's all white and gold and bright and so on. But that's not actually what the Bible seems to teach about heaven. Um, and if you've heard of the, the Greek philosopher Plato, you guys ever heard that name before? Um, it's probably worth noting that this is closer to, our, kind of our common misconception is closer to what he taught. This is platonic thinking. And most of us, without realizing, have bought into this platonic thinking. And so when we really force ourselves to try to forget what we think we know about heaven and, and read the Bible with, with new eyes and an open mind, what we begin to discover is that, that Scripture teaches kind of a reality of, of two parallel realms or realities all at the same time. There's the, the earthly realm, which is where we live and, and touch and smell and see and all of that stuff. And then there's the, the heavenly realm where God lives. But that, that, that's not going to surprise you. That's kind of what, what we've been believing most of our lives. 
But, and this is huge, they don't have to be mutually exclusive of one another. They do not have to be mutually exclusive of one another. They can overlap, much like a Venn diagram, where something can be simultaneously in one circle and in the other circle. And so, when God began to dwell among the people, first in a tabernacle, a tent, a, a temporary structure, and then later in a temple, a more permanent structure, he was creating a space where heaven and earth sort of intersect. You follow with me so far? And he begins to describe this language in Isaiah 66 first. This is what he says. God says, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. Jesus actually says something similar in Matthew 5. He's, he's talking about swearing oaths, but this is what he says. He says, but I tell you, do not swear an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is God's throne, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And so right here, the, the, the temple was that footstool place where, where God effectively spanned between two realms at the same time. And, and understanding that reality, I think, is critical to appreciate what God is getting ready to say to Ezekiel here in chapter 43, beginning verse 6. And this is what he says. He says, while the man was standing beside me, I heard someone speaking to me from inside the temple. And he said, son of man, this is the place of my throne and the place for the soles of my feet. This is where I will live among the Israelites forever. And I think this is our clue. If you have a pen or a highlighter, I highly encourage you to mark this, this verse. What did Isaiah and Jesus both say where God's throne was? Do you remember? Anybody? Heaven. They said it was heaven. But now, this voice from inside the temple in Ezekiel's vision speaks up and he says, this is the place of my throne. And he's not done. He continues. He says, and the place for the soles of my feet. Here's my point. The temple that Ezekiel sees, I think, is not only earthly, but heavenly. The temple that Ezekiel sees is not only heavenly, but earthly. I believe this is both and. And that means that it's at some undefined point in the future. Could be soon, could be far off. Ezekiel doesn't know, we don't know. But there's an important reality that we need to see beginning in verse 10. He says, Son of man, describe the temple to the people of Israel that they may be ashamed of their sins and let them consider its perfection. And if they are ashamed of all they have done, make known to them the design of the temple, its, its arrangements, its exits and entrances, its whole design and all its regulations and laws. Write these down before them so that they may be faithful to its design and follow all its regulations. So I want you to take what you just saw there. You can go ahead and put that back up for just a moment. I want you to kind of take what you just saw there and think about what's missing. Something, something that would seem obvious right here is missing. 
Is there ever a command for them to build what God has just described to Ezekiel? Go like this. There never is. This has nothing to do with God's people making this happen. You would think if I'm sharing kind of building plans with you, like the, the, the next implication is now go build it. But nothing like that is ever said. All he's told him to do is share this vision with the people. And so as the vision continues, Ezekiel sees uh, behavior and practices that are very similar to what anyone would have been familiar with uh, in their life around the temple. There, there are priests and there are sacrifices, there are altars, the whole bit. But let's continue on to chapter 47. In chapter 47, the, the man who's giving this tour to Ezekiel, this, this bronze man, if you will, brings him back to the entrance of the temple. And there he, he sees this little trickle of water coming from the temple. And so he says that as they travel a, a little ways, they're, they're kind of in the water, in the stream, it, it becomes ankle deep. And they travel a little ways further and it's knee deep. And they travel a little ways further and it's waist deep. And before you know it, he said they travel so far that it's now deep enough to swim in and it's moving fast enough that no one would dare cross it. And so in verse 6, he asked me, son of man, do you see this? Then he led me back to the bank of the river. And when I arrived there, I saw a great number of trees on each side of the river. And he said to me, this water flows toward the eastern region and goes down into the Araba, where it enters the Dead Sea. And when it empties into the sea, the salty water there becomes fresh. Swarms of living creatures will live wherever the river flows. There will be large numbers of fish because this water flows there and makes the salt water flesh. So where the river flows, everything will live. This is important. Everything will live where the water flows. Verse 12, fruit trees of all kinds will grow on both banks of the river. Their leaves will not wither, nor will their fruit fail. Every month they will bear fruit because the water from the sanctuary flows to them. Their fruit will serve for food and their leaves for healing. And so as Ezekiel draws to a close, chapter 48, I'm trying to give you a brief overview, and I'm going to tile this back in in just a moment. As chapter 48 begins to, to close, this bronze man takes Ezekiel around the temple. And he shows him the, the temple grounds, everything that's surrounding it. And he reveals all these, these places where the, the 12 tribes of Israel, all peoples, if you will, are given all these allotments that are going to be so many cubits high and so many cubits wide and so many cubits long. And as you piece those dimensions together, you began to see kind of a common geometric shape emerge. And it's a square. It's a square, which seems random. Like, why on earth, Josh, do you care if it's forming a square? What, what does this have to do with anything? Why is Josh caring about squares and rivers and temples and all of this stuff, right? Maybe you're asking that. I don't know. I would be if I were you. It's because if you've read the Bible before, this imagery is likely sounding all kinds of alarms in your mind right now because it's exactly the same kind of imagery that we see in two other key places in Scripture. The first place happens in the very first two chapters of the Bible in creation, specifically Genesis chapter 2, where we read about a river that flowed out of the Garden of Eden and watered all of the trees, producing good fruit good food and fruit to eat. The other place 
comes in Revelation 21 and 22, the last two chapters of the Bible. And what do you see there? We'll get to the river in just a moment. Read along with me. Revelation 21, beginning in verse 1. Here John says, I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look, God's dwelling place is now among the people. And he will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more mourning, no more death, no more crying, no more pain, for the old order of things has passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. There's your heaven and earth imagery. Verse 15 the angel who, who talked with me had a, a measuring rod of gold to measure the city, its gates, its walls. The city was laid out like a square. As long as it was wide, he measured the city with the rod and found it to be 12,000 stadia in length and as wide and as high as it is long. There's your square imagery. Chapter 22, verse 1. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, as clear as crystal flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb down the middle of the great street of the city. And on each side of the river stood the tree of life, bearing 12 crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. Well, there's your river imagery. And so church, if you're familiar with these texts and you read Ezekiel, there's a good chance that Ezekiel reminds you an awful lot of Revelation. In reality, if you were living in, in the New Testament days and, and Revelation drops, you're reading that, you're going, man, this reminds me an awful lot of what I read in Ezekiel. Ezekiel comes first. And I share this with you not to overload you with eschatology, the, the study of, of in things, but to help you see what on earth Ezekiel is talking about, what on earth God is trying to show him, and what on earth God wants Ezekiel to go and share and reveal to the people. Because you see, amid all the language and, and detail that Ezekiel shares, and all that we've talked about this morning of these eight or nine chapters, the point of it all is not the shape of the city. The point of it all is not the depth of the river. The point of it all is not the mysteries of the temple and the various interpretations. D.A. Carson, I think, summed it up best. And the point of it all, if you turn to the very last words of the book of Ezekiel, happen right there. In English, it's four words. In Hebrew, it's two. The point of it all is Yahweh Shem. The Lord is there. The Lord is there. Say that with me, church. The Lord is there. That is what God wants his people to see and wait for and anticipate. That is the ultimate vision, that the Lord is there. It's a vision of total restoration 
that humanity hasn't enjoyed since, since God walked among Adam and Eve in the garden. You realize that it's been thousands of years since God has been in full communion with his people. Thousands of years. They've not been able to do this. He's been separated from them because of their sin, because of their unfaithfulness. And yet, even in their exile, even in their estrangement from God, even as the temple has been destroyed and the, and the people have moved out with nothing but memories to hold on to, God reveals that there awaits a, a new future with a new temple and a new city. But that's not the point. That's not the end game. The end game is what? The Lord is there. His presence is there. His glory is there. His love is there. And wherever he is, dead things come to life. Dead things come to life. Church, I hear, I hear people all the time talk about what they want to do when they go to heaven, right? Peyton, we had this conversation just a little bit yesterday in the car. And I hear people say, oh, oh I, I can't wait to go to heaven. I want to ask so-and-so such and such a question. I've, I've been so curious to, to know the answer to that sort of thing. Or they say, oh, I, I can't wait to go. I want to see my dad. I want to see my mom. Or I want to see my kids. Or I want to see my husband or my wife or my grandparents, or whoever it might be. And all that's fine. I do too. I, I want to see a lot of people too. I don't think there's anything wrong with that. But do you know what I, I almost never hear a lot of people say when they envision going to heaven? I almost never hear people say anything about seeing and being with the Lord. I don't know if you've had a different experience than me. Because the only thing God has wanted from page one in scripture until the very end. He, he says it over and over and over again. He says, I want to be your God and I want you to be my people. And in my experience, when I interact with people in the world around me, the only thing that, that people that I know seem to want from page one of scripture until the very end is to, to be anything, anywhere but, anything but God's people. I, I have so many other priorities, so many other things in mind. And so Carson pointed out something I, I'd never thought of before in all of Revelation, that only one being in all of creation is ever given the opportunity to see the face of God. It's not the cherubim. It's not the seraphim. It's not the Nephilim. It's none of these heavy, heavenly celestial beings. Who is it? It's his image bearers. It's you and I. Revelation 22, 4 says that we are will see his face. And so many of us think about heaven. And what do we talk about when we get there? How we can't wait to see everybody else's face. That's our priority. I can't wait to see somebody else. It's as though heaven could be heaven. As long as we get to see some of those loved ones, as long as, as suffering and, and death all passes away, that's gone that it almost doesn't matter to a lot of people whether or not God is there at all. But in Revelation 4, John, John gives this vision of the throne room of heaven, and he sees four very familiar creatures if you read Ezekiel. He says in, in Revelation 4, 6, he says, In the center, around the throne, were four living creatures. And they were covered with eyes in front and back, the first living creature was like a lion, the second like an ox, the third like a man, the fourth was like a flying eagle. 
And each of the four living creatures had six wings and was covered with eyes all around, even under its wings, day and night. They never stopped saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. Church, that is the vision of heaven. It's about his holiness. It's about his glory. And I think a lot of us need to be reminded of that. I want to sum it up this way. Heaven is not heaven unless the Lord is there. Heaven is not heaven unless the Lord is there. And you know, I opened up this, this morning's message talking about all these, these memories that I have of packing up and moving out of places and, and what it was like to see a new family living in my old house and what it was like to, to want to move back into my old house and so on, to buy back the, those houses that I lived in teenage years. But I look back now and I realize that the building wasn't what made a house a home. It was the fact that life and family and all that stuff was taking place in there. And that can happen anywhere. That's what I've learned. And so church, many of us long to go to heaven where we get that mansion just over the hilltop and we, we walk on streets of gold and so on, where we get to see our, our long lost loved ones all over again. And that's all we seem to think about. That's all we seem to be concerned with, some of us. But we're missing the, the most vital piece of the puzzle, that heaven is not heaven unless the Lord is there. And I'm just curious, how many of us are truly excited to see him? How many of us are truly excited to praise him? How many of us are truly excited to know him? How many of us cannot wait to fall on bended knee prostrate before the glory of God and give him all the praise that he deserves because he is worthy. How many of us cannot wait for that opportunity? I want to go before him and cry out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. Because until we want to do that, until that's our first priority, it isn't heaven that we want. If heaven is just some construct of our own imagination, something that we, we think we get to define for ourselves, like, oh, heaven's kind of like this, and I'll see so-and-so, and we'll be fishing and all that stuff. Like, that's not heaven. That's an idol. That's something that we're creating in our own mind. Heaven is not heaven until the Lord is there. And just like the temple is not the temple until the glory of God moves in, and so we are not in the Father until Christ comes in through his death, burial, and resurrection and invites the Spirit of God into our lives, enabling us to become the temple of the Lord as the church. All of that is, is kind of the same. And so you have to ask, like, church, what is it that you want? Do, do you want heaven or is it something else that we're chasing, some vision of our own creation? And so as we close this morning, I want to invite you I want to invite you to seek the Lord, not to go through the motions, not to, to try to say all the right things and do all the right things. The Bible's very clear. We're not going to be able to do that. Absolutely try, but you're not going to be able to do that. So let's not make that our goal. 
but instead to find joy. Number one, in his grace, in his mercy, and the resurrection from the dead, but also in the simple promise of the presence of the Lord. That that is our goal. That is what we love. That is what we long for. Not primarily for mom or for dad or for, for grandma or so on. Just, just the Lord. Just that, that he is enough. That he is worthy. That he is madly and deeply and truly in love with you. And so the question we have to ask, church, is are we truly and madly and deeply in love with him? And so we invite you to him today. If you've not been baptized into him, I invite you to be baptized into Christ, to receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, to add your name to the Lamb's book of life, and to be with him for eternity. The choice to do that is yours. But as we get ready to stand and sing right now, we're going to sing a song to him for his glory, for his honor. And I want to just ask that you would, you would just be that much more mindful about what you're doing, to picture yourself in the presence of the Lord and to sing with all of your heart. Don't do it for me. Don't do it for Nathaniel. Don't do it for the person sitting next to you. Don't do it for, for concern about how you sound, that whether or not you, I don't care if you can carry a tune. I don't care if you're the worst singer in the history of singers. This is for him. And we get to praise him and glorify him right now. And so I just want to invite you to do that. And so as we, we stand, I want to invite you to stand where you are. I know for the sake of time, I often have a blessing over us, but I'm just going to invite Nathaniel to come up. But if, if you want to receive Christ as your Savior this morning, I invite you to come talk to me during this song. I'll be sitting here in the front row. You can talk to me in the courtyard after service today. But let's just picture ourselves in the presence of the Lord and give him glory, every ounce of it that he deserves. That's my prayer.